0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So ever since we were little kiddos, we've been told that talent and hard work pays off. But as we've gone into adulthood, we've all seen instances where people who are equally or even less talented than we are, or even less hardworking than we are, still got the raise, the buzz, the promotion, or the recognition that we so keenly wanted for ourselves. It can make a man downright cynical. Well, my guest today says that instead of getting jaded, you need to understand that hard work and talent, while necessary, aren't sufficient for success. His name is Albert Laszlo Barber. Bashi, and he's a professor of network science and the author of the book The Formula: Universal Laws of Success. We begin our conversation discussing how Laszlo's work in network science helped him uncover the hidden connections that lead to success. Laszlo then explains the difference between performance and success and how it's possible to be a high performer but not be successful. We then dig into the five universal laws that Laszlo and his researches have found that cut across achievement of success in every field, along with practical takeaways, you can start implementing in your life to experience more success yourself. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash formula. Laszlo joins me now via clearcast.io. Albert Laszlo Barbasi, welcome to the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, Brad. So you uh, just recently published, not too long ago, a book called The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success, The Science Behind Why People succeed or fail. Now, uh, the, the story of how this book came to be is really interesting because for a living, what you've spent most of your career doing is studying complex networks. In fact, you run the Center for Complex Network Research. For those who aren't familiar with that, like what exactly do you do there? Sure. So,
1: I'm, I'm a network scientist, officially, professor of network science, and we study all kinds of networks. And the reason we do so because virtually... All our social and biological existence depends on networks. You know, are we embedded in the social network and professional network? All professional opportunities depend on access to the right network. But even with our very biological existence depends on the, on a let's say, chemical, biochemical network within ourselves and genetic network within ourselves, and our consciousness depends really on the wiring of our brain. So we don't think often too much about it but really the the fact that we are alive and can exist and do what we do is all depends on myriads of networks and network science aims to study and understand these type of networks. So we study at the same time the biological networks like genetic networks but also the internet social networks and eventually in the last few years networks that determine your success.
0: And And how did that happen? How did that go? How did you go from looking at say a biological network, say in our brain or within our uh, genes to studying how successful people become successful
1: sure it it's uh, there are two ways of taking one of them was really by an accident, which is I had a fabulous student who was now a professor at Kellogg of business at Northwestern, but that time he was just coming off a project about disasters that is, to try to understand how people change their behavior when they experience some kind of disaster in their neighborhood. And we use mobile phones to track human behavior and try to understand whether we could detect something odd happening in your neighborhood, just the way you behave and use your phone. And it was a fabulous project, and we wrote a great paper about it. Yet, journal after journal rejected the paper. So one day... One of the students who was on the project, Dashun Wang, came to me and said, okay, what's next? We're done with this, kind of. What should be my next project? And I said, what would you like to do? And he said, whatever, but not another disaster. <laughs> and I kind of said, okay, well, how about Success. How about science of success? And we kind of laughed about it, but then we looked at each other and said, hmm, this is not such a bad idea. And why wasn't such a bad idea? Because we're network scientists and we have spent quite a bit of time by then over a decade looking at the structure of networks. But we hardly ever asked the question how you as a node is experiencing the network that you are part of and whether the network will actually help you succeed in certain areas or pull you back. So kind of that night from this kind of random direction or discussion came a new subject of study for us that is still ongoing in my lab. How do we quantify success, what's the role in networks, and how do we really describe performance and success in the language of science?
0: Okay. So yeah, basically it's like, I get the, the question was like, tell me why, figure out why your our paper got rejected. <laughs> why wasn't it a success? <laughs> it was the, the impetus. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's talk about sort of typical, before we get into what you guys uncovered with your research, let's talk about how people in general think about success. Mm-hmm. Like when you ask people just on the street or maybe a colleague. Like, how do, how do you become a success? What are some of the most common answers or assumptions that we have about that? I'm so glad you asked that because I was very
1: surprised that uh, when I went around and, and asked people really that question, I realized that most people are really shy to talk about the measures of success that the society consider success, from money to citations to visibility, but they talk about their personal successes, like their pride in their children, the satisfaction of achieving something in their life, of being where they are, and so on. And we were at that time curious about how you quantify success, because anything we do has to be quantified and measurable and so on. And for us it was a big dilemma. How do we describe that? And, and for us, actually, we realized that we have to make a very big distinction between performance, which is what you do and how you feel about what you do and so on and success. And this is interesting that we have to distinguish that because in the common language, they're often used interchangeably, these two terms and they are. We do so because we learn early on in school that performance leads to success. Hence, if you are successful, you must have performance. If you have performance, you will be successful. But from a data perspective, we realize that these are very different quantities because performance is something that you do, how fast you run, what kind of research papers you write, what kind of deals you put together as a businessman, what kind of paintings you paint. Success, however, is mostly about What does the community see from that performance and whether they acknowledge it or not and whether they reward you and how they reward you for that? In other words, your performance is about you, but your success is really about us, about the community that acknowledges and rewards you for that performance, which from a data perspective was very interesting because probably as we go on, we will realize in this discussion that Performance often is hard to measure, but success is easily measurable because it reflects the community's opinion about you. Hence, there are multiple data points
0: about your success. So you can measure success in ways like okay, number of citations a journal article gets, for example, a number of books a book sells, the number of I guess time I guess nowadays not albums sold but you know downloads of a song. That those are metrics of success you can measure.
1: Yes. And it's important to understand that there is not a single measure of success. It's not just money, say, or fame, right? But depending on what you do, there are different measures of success in the community. As as you said, for a scientist, that's impact. That is often measured in terms of citations. For a musician, it's downloads, right? Or how many people show up at the concert? For an author, it's audience. How many people listen to them? For a politician, may actually be fame, you know, because that kind of translates into votes and so on. So so for each area, one has to find the right performance measure and the right success measure. But one of the things I discuss in the formula is that despite the fact that there are multiple measures of performance and multiple measures of success, fundamentally the, the laws that describe the relationship between performance and success are rather universal and apply to all different areas.
0: Well, you give a great example in the book just sort of showing the, the difference between success and performance It comes from World War I. Now, people... Are in America? They've probably had Red Baron pizza. Mm-hmm. The Red Baron was this famous ace pilot during World War One. People know about him today. Snoopy made him famous from the Charlie Brown comic. But you also so there's there's someone who was successful because he performed well, but also people knew him. But you also highlight there's also another World War One ace that had probably much the pretty much the same performance level as the Red Baron, but no one knows about him. Yes, indeed, uh, and and that really kind of shows to me how
1: kind of different success could be. So indeed, the Red Baron, or Juan Ricofer, what was his name in the First World War, was a very famous ace pilot who has had really every measure of success one can imagine. And he is very well known to us because he holds officially the record number of planes shut down, I believe in the vicinity of 80 or so. And because of that, movies were written about him, books have been written about, documentaries, and so on. And he was a person who was not shy to hide his success. He's called Red Baron because at a certain moment, he went against of the principle that we have today in aviation to build planes that are invisible. But instead, he painted his own airplane red so everyone knows that it's him and it's coming. So what is interesting when you look at the data is that while he was on the German side, on the Allied side, there was another person. His name is Rene Falk who was just as good at fights, actually, as himself. Not only that that he himself counts that about 120 planes that he shot down, which is much higher than de Koffer, about 70 have been confirmed, and most likely he has actually shut down more than the Red Baron. But most importantly, he himself has never been shut down and never even be scratched by a bullet while the Red Baron has been shot down three times during his career and third time, he even lost his life in the battle. So yet all the movies are about the Red Baron and you hardly hear about René Fonk. And that's really the mystery of the formula. This is one of the reasons I wrote the formula is for people and myself to understand why is it that With virtually indistinguishable performance, some succeed and some are just plainly forgotten.
0: Yeah, and uh, as I was reading that chapter, it made me think of there's some artists, writers in particular, who their performance level was phenomenal at the time when they were alive. Made me think of Herman Melville with Moby Dick. We consider it a masterpiece now. Same with The Great Gatsby by Scott Fitzgerald. We consider them like, you know, masterpieces, great American novels. But it was that didn't happen until after they died. Like they didn't become a success the way you define it until after they died. Even though the the the, the, they masterfully wrote it when they were alive. Mm -hmm. That's actually an interesting story,
1: and uh, and I probably didn't devote enough time in the formula. Is this the idea of posthumous success? Right, that people would recognize what I do when I how great is what I do after I die. And despite of all the examples that you mentioned, and I could add more, like Van Gogh and Nietzsche, the data is pretty clear about it. It's not common. It's extremely rare that someone is recognized after their death. What do I mean by that? When you go back in the encyclopedia and you look at the people whom we admire and remember today, and scientists have done that. There's a so-called genius literature who focuses on that, uh, mostly rooted in psychology. What they realized is that 99% of the people whom we consider important for us today from the past were very, very important to their contemporaries. And they have gotten all the recognition that was possible at that moment of, uh, of their career. So uh, and so you know if you think from Michelangelo to you know Leonardo from Beethoven to uh, Bach and others they were revered in their times and there are very very few less than 1% of the individuals who were recognized after their death but those 1% Present such a powerful storyline for us that we end up writing most of our books and most of our movies about them. And therefore, they occupy a bigger space in our brain than those who really did not follow that pattern. So if I look at the data, my recommendation to you and to your audience, if you want to be successful, don't count on the next generation to recognize that. Make sure that you follow the patterns that I describe in the formula, and get your recognition. Why you can see it and enjoy it.
0: Well, so here's another question. So, if perception by the community is what is one of the necessary factors in order to be success. That could lead people to the conclusion: Well, if I just, I just if I'm just famous, if I'm known by a lot of people, then I'm a success. Is that necessarily the case?
1: Well, there are certain forms where fame is the goal. And you know, the pretty much the celeb culture is really in that particular category. And I know often people ditch the celeb culture to say, oh, all they do is they want to be famous, and they don't do really anything. The truth is that those people work very, very hard to continue staying in the kind of in the attention of the community or the world at large. So it's not so easy to continue doing that. And perhaps The reason why we think less of them is because we don't perceive that they're doing something good for the society. So it's the sake, for the sake of becoming famous, that's what their activity for. In most other areas, people who are famous from Einstein to, uh, to, let's say Lady Gaga, they became famous through some activity that they have done, some professional activity that we as a community or as a society really appreciate. So there's this dictonomy, right, uh, between that. So you can become famous for the sake of famousness or as a result of something good that you've done for the society. And as a value system, we obviously appreciate better of those who have just done their job and then we
0: recognize them and made them famous. Well, that leads nicely to the, the first law of success you lay out. What is the first law in the formula? Sure. The first law really kind of addresses the
1: relationship between performance and success, and it reads like that. Performance drives success, but when performance can't be measured, networks drive success. And there's lots of, lots of information packed into that. Because on one end, it actually acknowledges the fact that when in areas where performance is measurable, then it determines success. Unfortunately, there are very few areas where performance is accurately measurable. Sports is one of them. And perhaps investment is another one. And what we have shown in my research lab and I discuss in the formula is the fact that when really you can measure performance, like how fast you can run or whether you're winning or losing your tennis games, then all measurable success quantities are purely derived from that and they're predictable. But the. The problem comes is that most people in this society live, work and live in areas where performance is not as easily measurable as it is the case in a for a runner. That is, we don't have a chronometer. Whether you're teaching at the school or the university or whether you're putting together deals for a business or whether you're painting, you are in areas where performance is very, very difficult to pressure, measure. So then the question is, when performance is not measurable, what determines success? And as I discussed in the first
0: law, networks do. So, and what are the implications of this law? I mean, what how what can people do to I don't know guide their life or their career decisions knowing this law? Sure. So perhaps let's kind of pull out a little bit the network
1: piece, right? And what are the areas where network where performance is not measurable at all? And as I discuss in the book. One area that is clear in that case is art, because is the microphone in front of me is a work of art or purely a microphone? Well, in front of me, it's purely a microphone. If you would see the same microphone on a pedestal uh, exhibited in MoMA under a wide, uh, like transparent box, it would be an artwork. So art is modern art or contemporary art is one of those areas where you cannot just look at the object from in isolation from the art world and decide what is it worth. Its worth is determined by who was the artist who put it out there, what did the artist do before, where he or she was exhibited before, what happened to him afterwards, and what institutions were engaged with that artist. And we have taken this to such an extreme that we mapped out the art world in the last four years, every single artist's career, and we were able to show that we can map out the invisible network that determines the success in the art world and that network is extremely predictable. It has extreme predictive power. If you give me your favorite artist in the last five exhibits, I can fast forward his or her career 20 years into the future and tell you whether he or she will make it or not. Why is that? Because art is one of those pieces where performance is impossible to measure, and it's only the network that determines the future success. You have to engage with the network that determine the value in the art. In the art case of the art, those are the institutions, galleries, galleries, curators, and so on. So coming back to the original question, what does that mean? The first question I would ask, sit down and think to yourself, are you in a career path where you have an objectively measurable performance? And in that case, indeed, the key, to, uh, the path to success is to improve your performance, run faster, you know, make better deals and so on. If, however, you are in an area where performance is not accurately measurable or not measurable at all, then beyond a certain point, improving performance does not give you more results. You need to start paying attention to those influence and power networks that determine success.
0: So does that mean you have to work on building up your network?
1: Yes, but it's not as simple as simply mindless networking. And myself as a network scientist, is kind of odd to say that's not what you should be doing, networking. What you need to do is to understand what is that network that determines success in your area. Like in the case of the art world, it's not the network between the artists. The artists are totally relevant. There are puppets in the show. The network that really matters is the institutions, the curators, small curators, as well as the galleries. So just hanging around with lots of artists is not the path to success in the art world. Kind of understanding these forces that determine how artists and artwork moves within the institutions is the key. And all areas have their own respective network. We're in the process, for example, to start a project. To map out the net networks and the forces that lead to entrepreneurial success. And we already see the multiple networks that are important there from actually getting access to the resources all the way to, uh, to kind of getting funded the people that you bring in your company and so on. So, so I'm giving this example and the art example to people understand that really there is no one size fits all. And depending on what you do, maybe a completely different network that is responsible. The first step of the process, understand, map it mentally out, and then try to think, what do you need to do to position yourself well within that
0: network? Well, let's go to your world, the world of academia. Like, what was what would be the network that you need to develop to say get that paper published that didn't get published? Sure, actually,
1: academia is somewhere between art and sciences because performance doesn't matter. And why it doesn't matter is that if you and I actually write down a formula for, let's say, predicting the success of tennis players, then. The formula can be tested on the data and the community can decide whether your formula or my formula is better. And, you know, if yours is better, then you will actually carry the success and my formula will be very quickly forgotten. But networks are still important because not everything is worthwhile or it's possible to study. There are so-called disciplines and within disciplines there are kind of, uh, you know, breaking areas. And in a little bit, there's a community decision of what are the areas that really we should be focusing on. And you could get fabulous results in areas that no one really cares. And therefore, really, you will not have an impact. So in science, performance and networks together matter. The networks determine what is worthwhile to explore. And then within that area, there's a clear performance measure, whether your theory or your formula or your
0: prediction is better than mine. Gotcha. All right, so to recap the first law, the first law is if an activity can be measured, performance is going to matter, but if it can't be measured, then the network is going to matter more. Did I get that right? Correct. Okay, so let's move on to the second law. What is the second law in the formula? The second law really talks about the fact that performance and
1: success are very, very different animals mathematically. And it's formulated like, that. Performance is bounded, but success is unbounded. But we need to unpack what that means. So think about runners, right? The runners are determined really, uh, their performance is determined by their speed, and we have a chronometer, and we can measure it. And of course, we know that the fastest man on earth is Usain Bolt. What is interesting about him, when I look at his performance, is that when he wins a race, he doesn't really win by all outrunning significantly his competition. He runs at most one percent faster than the loser of that particular competition. And, And particularly when I look at his speed, he's not running 10 times faster than I do. And trust me, I'm not a good runner at all. So when we measure performance like speed of running or any other really objectively measurable human performance, what we realize is that there are not a huge variability between the performance of the individuals, that is, the best is not really much, much better than the second best, but only slightly better. This has important consequences. This is what we call that performance is bounded. And one of the consequences is, is that no matter how good you are in terms of performance, you, you will never be much better than your competition and there will be others who are so closely similar to you in performance that is almost indistinguishable. Now, put to that the other piece, the fact that in many areas, performance is not possible to measure in an objective manner. So now, if performance is bounded and you can't even measure performance in an objective way, it means that you, no matter what you do, you can count on that there are several people who are indistinguishably good as you are at your job. Now, this is not to say that we cannot distinguish good from bad. Good singer from bad singer, good businessman from bad businessman. But what is difficult is to do is to distinguish the good singer from the good singer, the good wine from the good wine, and so on. So performance is bounded, and that's a humbling uh, result because it really tells me that that doesn't matter what I do, I cannot really be the absolute best in a measurable way at what I do. I have to coexist with many others who are comparable to me. But success is unbounded. What does this mean? It means that when we look at the success measures, how much money, the number one, errors versus number two, how many citations the best scientists earn compared to the second one, and so on, the differences are not tiny, but it can be orders of magnitude. And indeed, this is kind of well known that the income distribution is not uniform and the top people actually are not just earning 1% more than the second one, but often a factor of 10 could be the difference at the end. So, So that's really what the second law tells us. Performance is bounded. That is very hard to distinguish those at the top. But success is unbounded. That is the number one are not just slightly better rewarded, but often orders of magnitude better rewarded than number two.
0: This is uh, goes to like power laws, right? Where, where you're talking about success is unbounded. Correct. So
1: mathematically, it means that every time that we measure performance, it, fo- it follows a bounded distribution like a Gaussian or exponential distribution. But every time we measure performance, whether it's citations, now downloads of songs or man the earth it follows a power law distribution. In the economics literature, this is often called the Pareto's Law from the 19th century economist in Italy who realized the so-called 80-20% rule that it, that 20% of the individuals earned 80% of the money at that time in Italy. That is true even today, except it became more extreme, particularly in the US. You know, like 80% of the money in the US is probably earned by the top 2-3% of the population.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So, I mean, what's the takeaway from this? Because it's going to be kind of depressing, right? Because like, well, I'm just as good as that guy who's getting all the book sales and money. Why am I not getting that? Like, what do I need to do to compete with that guy? Or can you even compete with that superstar who's you know at the top end of the power law? Uh,
1: yes, you can. And the key, actually, is to really understand that Beyond a certain point, the competition is not based on performance because those performance differences are not visible. And then you need to pay attention to other effects, namely to the third law.
0: Okay, so what is the
1: third law? <laughs> of course. So the third law is formulated li- like that. Preview success times fitness equals future success. So let's again and take it apart and what it means. Preview well, the law starts with simply saying success drives success. That is, the more you have, the more you will get proportionate to what you already have. I have discovered or encountered that this the first time about 20 years ago when we were studying the world wide web. And we tried to understand why is it that certain web pages have millions of links, why the vast majority of the web pages have a few dozen at most. So what's the mechanism by which a certain web page like Google or Yahoo running away with such an exceptional number of links? And we realize that mathematically to describe that, you have to assume that success leads to success. That is, the more links you have on the World Five Web SO web page, the more you will get tomorrow. The more friends you have, the more friends you will make tomorrow, and so on. And this is a very powerful law. It's called in the scientific literature as preferential attachment, saying that, that effectively, if you have more, you are preferentially chosen by the new who kind of tried to vote and again for you. But of course, if only rich gets richer, which is what preferential attachment says, the question is, how do you become rich to get richer? <laughs> so what's the mechanism by which coming from behind, you could actually become that hub? Or that very rich individual. And that's where the fitness concept comes in. The fitness is really telling us that nodes have different abilities, or individuals have different abilities to compete for success. And once again, we discovered first in the case of the World Wide Web, trying to understand how can a latecomer web page turn into the most connected page. Like Facebook was a relatively latecomer on the World Wide Web, yet within a few years after its appearance, it became the single biggest hub of the World Wide Web, overcoming even Google. And we realized that there is another concept, which is the fitness and once again, fitness is a collective measure that the community assigns to a particular node or individual, and effectively tells you how, much, how interesting you are for us. Fitness as an individual tells you, if I meet you, do I want to keep your phone number? Fitness as a webpage tells me, if I go to your web page, do I want to save that link to go back again? And in all areas, there is a, co- a measure of fitness, and it effectively d- describes the community's perception of how useful that individual, that product, that web page is. And the reason why fitness is important is because the rich gets richer phenomena is really filtered to the fitness. That is, visibility means that I can easily find you. Well, once I find you, I make a decision if I want to know you and connect to you. And that's determined on your fitness. Hence, a low fitness big note could actually lose or throw slower and lose its edge. But if a high fitness note comes into the world by web, it very fastly can acquire new links and can overcome the earlier web pages like Facebook has overcome Google. So at the end, what we learn is that really your success is determined by your previous success, which is your visibility—how easy it is for me to find you—times your fitness is telling me. Once I found you, what is the likelihood that I will actually connect to you or work with you?
0: Because well, that's interesting. I, I want—I like that distinction between fitness and visibility because that visibility factor can be manipulated in unethical ways, where you get lots of visibility. Really fast, right? So there's like examples of authors who will buy their books in bulk, right? So they can get on the New York Times list. But you're saying, okay, that might give you visibility in the, in the short term, but once people start reading it, they actually find out, well, it's not a very good book. You're not going to be as successful.
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you raised that example because we, my lab, actually analyzed the book success. We have purchased sales data from BookScan and we looked at kind of decades long of like what makes a book successful and what doesn't. And we actually do see books. That are pushed up on the New York Times bestseller list, that is when they appear there, they appear on the bestseller list, and generally they sell no more copies in the coming weeks whatsoever. This is a traditional case of the situation that you described: very strong marketing and often purchase massive purchases to kind of create the numbers to make it the bestseller list. but then when people actually get that book, they realize, no, I don't really want to read, read that and they would not recommend it to anyone else. Which actually is an interesting question in terms of success. Does the New York Times bestseller list or appearing there will help you sell books? And uh, actually that's a very studied question. I discussed that in the formula that the answer is no. Uh, the, appearing on the New York Times bestseller list will not actually boost your sales. Uh, for vast majority of the books, at least it will not. The only time it will do so if you are a new time author and you've never been in a bestseller list and for the first time appear there. And then in that case, it acts kind of like a, like a marketing tool that people will find about you, your book about. And then therefore they may by chance buy it. In most cases, the New York Times bestseller list is not selling books. It's simply reflecting the community's interest in your book.
0: This chapter also, you, you talk about this. Um, I've always found fascinating is the, the study and the research on the wisdom of crowds. We have this idea because of the internet. Well, the crowd, if, if you get them together, are going to come up with the best. But there's like a study you talk about in the book where, like, I think at Stanford, where they looked at music downloads. Mm-hmm. And like in one case, like people they couldn't see what other people were downloading, and in that case, people typically rated the songs the same in quality. But then once people could see what other people were downloading, what ended up being the most popular downloaded song like changed based on like the particular group that they were in. So there's like a, a, a social network uh, effect going on there. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, and this is very interesting because cultural markets can be very volatile and uh, you know like books and music and so on and w- we often attribute to the variable quality. but what this study has shown that was done by Matt Sagalnik and Duncan Watts at that time they were working at Yahoo is that really the volatility is often not in the quality of the song but it is rather in the crowd effects and and effectively, when people were not shown the ranking of the song and they were asked to rank songs just simply pure based on the performance, they would come up with a relatively stable ranking that reflects the community's perception, which is a good song. But indeed, in the moment, they were actually shown of what, how many other people have liked that song. Then the outcome became totally unpredictable. So they have, they had eight different parallel experiments that different groups of people ended up in the different rooms. And the outcome of the eight experiments was drastically different. And there was no agreement between the eight groups of which one is the best song. What is interesting about it is that we live in the society where we rely on other people's opinion in many of our decisions. We go at Amazon and see how many people like a particular product, how many comments it has. Uh, and whether we try to go to a hotel, we actually look at how many people like that hotel and what kind of comments they gave. And therefore, we are relying on the crowd to shortcut our decision process. But What this study shows is that the crowd decision is really not selecting quality because there's a huge degree of volatility in the randomness of you know like how what the crowd sees first and how they pick it up so but what is also interesting about it is that if you are actually following the crowd's election process my colleagues were able to come up with formulas that can infer the true value of each of those objects whether it's songs or services or books. So that, and, and tell us which one is truly the best. And why is that important is because you can rank things when you have a store, for example, based on the popularity, or you can rank things based on the true inner value of that, that you infer from these formulas. And what the data shows is that your customers are much more likely to make a purchase if the ranking is based on the quality than it is based on popularity because partly they look at it that uh, the ranking and if they don't like what they see at the front they walk away from it if you rank on the true quality that you can infer from this data They very likely going to like what they see on the top, and
0: they will make a purchase. Okay, so the the third law is success is visibility times fitness. So fitness is performance, basically whether you're you're good, you know, Mm -hmm. you can replicate it. So, like, what's the takeaway from that law? So you you said earlier, like, so how do you get in order to be successful? You got to be successful. Mm -hmm. Let's say there's a young entrepreneur or a Mm -hmm. young writer who's just starting out. What can they do? uh, Understanding that law. Well, I mean, first of all, is Number
1: one is understanding that that mechanism takes place. And then if you're completely novice, then the big question is how you get started. Right. And I discussed in the book several studies that show how important is that initial acknowledgement of what you do. My favorite one actually is the Kickstarter stu- study where a colleague, a sociologist from Holland has gone and randomly picked 200 Kickstarter projects that no one has yet supported because they were brand new and grouped them into two, two groups randomly. And for one of the group, he actually gave them a little money proportional to how much they were asking for, and he simply ignored the other group. And then he asked, what's, how did the two groups do? How did the projects in the two groups have done? And what he found a month later is that the groups that he actually gave that initial tiny investment in have had a much, much higher chance of actually succeeding in collecting the money that they had compared to the random one, which was really odd because these were the, the groups were randomly decided. So it's not that the group that he chose was any better than the group they didn't choose. And this experiment and many other experiments he has shown, he has done have shown. How important is that initial endorsement? Like if you get the prize, you're much more likely to get further prize. If you get the support from someone, you're much more likely to get further support and particularly people who are in the investment business, let's say startups, they know that very well. Once a big name company or even not big name company comes and tries to invest into your company, lots of other investors will come by and say, I also want to do that. The hardest is to get that very first investment that very first endorsement. And why is that first endorsement important? The first prize is because we decision makers are very, very risk averse. So if I have a choice between one that has been already endorsed and supported by people whom I trust and one that has never been, I'm much more likely going to choose the one that has been endorsed in others because I feel like I'm reducing my chance of failure by doing so. So the challenge for a young interpreter and for a young person in anything, whether it's science or or business or art, is that how you get that initial endorsement, how you get that initial attention, how you get that first award that will make you awardable in the
0: future. And I imagine it goes back to the first rule, building up your network in a smart way can help increase that chances that someone gives you that first endorsement. Absolutely.
1: And and you asked earlier, if performance is bounded, then what is that I can do? And if fitness, drive, if success drives success? And the answer is to pay attention to these random things like this initial endorsement. We have a tendency to say, well, you know, this endorsement will come naturally if I do good work. And what the research is showing is that that's not necessarily so in how they distinguish the success from failure.
0: Okay, so let's move on to the fourth law because people hear, okay, that first endorsement helps. So one thing like a young academic or young writer will think was, like, if I just collaborate with someone who's bigger than me, that can help me. But the fourth law says, eh, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, often collaboration and teamwork
1: is not a choice. We live in a society that most big tasks cannot be achieved alone. You have to work with others to do so. And when you work with others, there are two questions come up what's the right team to lead to success? And the second one is, who gets the credit for the team's work? And in the formula, I spent quite one chapter discussing really the research that came out in the last few years to understand what makes the good team. But personally, I think the most important part of this law is not as much how you make a good team. But once the team is there, and they have achieved the work, and let's say that they successfully did so, who will walk away with the credit for it? That is, will the person who came up with the idea, will the one who did most of the work, or perhaps the person who really came up with the eureka moment and solved the problem, or maybe the promotion will go to the individual who made sure that the coffee is warm. On the table at all times. And the reason why this is an important question is because the, we, within the team, we understand who did what. But the community outside of the team, the one who rewards you for the team's performance, often and typically has no clue about what was the role of each of the players. And success is based on the perception, not on performance. So the the success eventually and the reward will be determined of what the community perceives about who was responsible for the success of the team. And this is not just kind of a theoretical discussion. We have actually written an algorithm that looks at any research paper published in scientific literature and decides how much credit each of the author gets independent of the order of the authors or how many authors are in the paper. And of course, we have that formula to tell you how much credit you get for the team's work. But how do we know that we are right? And to test that we are right, we went to areas where the community has already decided who gets the reward for that work, and namely prizes, in particular, Nobel Prizes. So we've taken all the Nobel Prize winning papers. Some of them had as many as 175 authors. And we use our algorithm to decide who should get the Nobel Prize. And in about 95% of the cases, we got it exactly right. That the authors we picked are those who actually the Nobel Prize Committee awarded the prize for. In a few cases, we were wrong. And every time we were wrong, there was a juicy story behind that, helping understand really the Paris of, allocation of credit uh, uh, when it comes to Teams work. Just to give you an idea of how it works, you are hosting this uh, podcast, I'm simply the guest. If this podcast will be the most successful podcast that you ever done, and I'm sure it will be, then it's your credit, not mine. Because you put together the podcast, you chose me as a person to interview, you are asking the question and guiding this conversation. Hence, rightly so, it will be your success if this particular show is is well regarded by the community. However, if you and I write a paper about network science, and let's assume that you come up with the idea, and let's assume that you decide to spend the next year in my lab and work out that idea because you are so passionate about it. The truth is, that when the paper is published, is going to be my paper. And it's going to be my paper, not because I did anything in that, but because you and I, being co-authors, you have no track record in network science. And everybody who will read the paper will say, oh, Laszlo has some other paper. And here is Brad, who's actually helped him to make that a reality. So the credit for a work doesn't really depend on who did what. It depends on who is the person who's Previous and subsequent work most likely aligns with the team's success. That is, that you know, like if you if you are a scientist and if you publish many, many papers in network science, like I did, and I will continue to do so, you and I publishing a paper means that the credit mostly goes to me because the community sees it as part of my intellectual journey. So which means that. Really, one can actually look at a potential collaboration and decide even before the work has started, whether if that work is successful, will I get credit for it for or not? And this is very interesting because we're not doing work only to get credit for it. I engage in lots of team activities where I'm not there for credit. I'm there just to make sure that that project is successful because I deeply care about it. But if the project that you're working on you do so because you would like to get credit and acknowledgments for your work in that project then you need to choose carefully making sure that indeed uh the the project's outcome
0: lines up with your intellectual journey so uh, what does this mean for like a young say an academic who um, who is teams <laughs> up with like teams up with you? They're like I want to be a network scientist. <laughs> They're gonna work on a paper with you, but you're gonna get all the credit. How can they still benefit that from that collaboration with oh. you and get that visible success? I am so glad that you asked that question,
1: ben, because I tell every student of mine when we publish a great or not so great paper, it doesn't matter together. I tell them, Congratulations. Now your first or second or third publication out, but you need to understand that this is not your paper, but my paper. How will you change that? Well, two things you need to do. First, go out and speak at every possible venue, conferences, workshops about this work. So people will get to know you and they slowly associate the results with you and not with me, whom they already know. Second, and that even more important, go ahead and publish a series of papers on the same topic without me. And with that, the credit will slowly shift to you. I had, for example, my great student, Marta uh, postdoc, actually, Marta Gonzalez, who worked for several years in my lab. And together we started working for the first time on human mobility, using cell phone data to understand how people move around and what are the fundamental laws of human mobility. What what Marta has done after leaving my lab is that she moved to become a faculty at MIT and she ended up writing quite a number of fabulous papers on the same topic and I personally stopped working on that. So now when the community would like an expert on human mobility, no one thinks of me. Everyone thinks of Marta. She rightly so gets much of the credit for the joint work.
0: Okay, that's useful information. So that can apply even if you're an academic or a business person. At some point, you have to differentiate yourself and go off on your own. Absolutely. And it's really, the, the key is
1: not necessarily to say, well, you and I made a great business and I'm now going to become a great singer and I will get the credit for the joint business. No, you have to continue working in the same area and and so that you can strengthen the credit for the work that you've
0: done alone. All right, so let's move to the fifth law because... This uh, came top of mind to me this week because in the Atlantic, we'll talk about what it is, but in the Atlantic, there was an article talking about your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think by Arthur C. Brooks. <laughs> and he's saying that, yeah, you know, you're you know you going to have a lot of success early on in your career, and then you reach the point where you're not going to have much success. The fifth law says, eh, maybe not so fast. You, might, you can still have success even later on in your career.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad we get to talk about the fifth law because this is really the favorite part of the book for me, particularly so because I just passed 50 and based on all the previous research on the topic of creativity, the conclusion is clear. I have really very limited chance of overcoming my earlier work. What do I mean by that? There is a whole research in the genius literature that looks at what age people that we admire today have done their best work, whether in 20s, 30s, or 40s, and 50s, and the conclusion is pretty clear. Notable individuals tend to do the most important or career-defining work relatively early in their career. This is so much so that Einstein once claimed that if a person has not made his or her major discovery by the age of 30, he will never do so. So a few years ago, we were curious, is this only true for geniuses or is it true for average individuals, every scientist as well? So we ended up reconstructing the career of all scientists from 1900 till today, finding out when they did their best work, whether there was a Nobel prize winning discovery or something that no one remembers, but it was the best of their own career. And uh, what we were surprised to find that It turns out that people do their best personal best work relatively early in their career. But one uh, in line with the genius discovery and. But when we look more carefully at the data, we realize that not only they do actually most of their big discovery early in their career, but they do most of the published work relatively early in their career. That is, productivity changes during the, uh, the career of an individual very high early on. Young people try a lot, publish a lot, paint lots of paintings, write lots of music. And as they age, they do less and less of that. And when we put productivity and success together, we realized that really there is no age dependence of creativity. Rather, truly, what we learned is that every single project in a person's career has exactly the same probability of becoming his or her most important work. That is, success or successful projects are like lottery tickets, uh, that each of them has the same probability of winning. But what it turns out is that most People write, buy their lottery tickets, or do most of their projects relatively early in their career. And as time goes on, they try less and less. So therefore, it appears as if people—only young people—can win the lottery, or only young people can be actually successful. And this is uh, the data indicates that this is not the case at all. There is no age dependence, which is fabulous news for me obviously, because it means that if I continue ro- doing research, I could still come up with a discovery that would overshadow everything that I did until now. And there are beautiful examples for that. I discuss in the book the example of John Flan, who was a chemist at Yale University who was forcefully retired at, at uh, 70 at the end of his career, but he was not ready to give up. So When they closed his lab down at Yale, he moved to Virginia Commonwealth University. And it is there in the new research lab where he made the discovery for which 15 years later, at age 85, he received the chemistry Nobel Prize. So at the end, what we learned from this research is that no, creativity has no age. Productivity does. People do tend to slow down, mainly because age, aging, partly because of family responsibilities, often because other opportunities open up. You know, they become research administrators or start running companies that will take away from their initial expertise and area of interest. But but creativity doesn't wane as long. Those who actually continue doing it. They could, they could come up with their break to discovery at any age of their career. John Flynn was 93 when he passed away. And a few days before
0: his death, he was still in the lab working on the next paper. All right. That, that gives me hope. I, I like that. So let's do a, a quick summary of this. Sure. First of all, it's really about performance drive success.
1: But when performance can be measured networks drive success. That is really that, you know, you have to pay attention to your network if your performance is not so distinguishable from the other ones. The second law says performance is bounded, but success is unbounded, which really says performance at the top is very hard to distinguish, but success is easily distinguishable. The third law helps us understand Which of the high performance individuals will succeed, telling us that previous success times fitness is the one that leads to future success. And all measures of success, from citations to money to visibility, follow that. The fourth law talks about teamwork, saying that while team success requires diversity and balance, a single individual will receive credit for the group's achievement. That is Credit really is assigned based on perception and not on what you did on the team. And you need to manage that performance if you would like, uh, or you need to manage that perception if you would like to get credit for the work you have done in the team setting. And finally comes the fifth law. I said my favorite at this age of my career, telling us with persistence, success can come at any time.
0: I love this. And what I love about this, uh, as you said throughout those conversations, is there's sometimes not specific prescriptions you can give on how to apply these things. But as you said, just understanding how this works can start getting you to think about how can I use this or apply this in my specific career or setting that I'm in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even for me, you know, uh,
1: writing this book and organizing these laws that were scattered in the literature into multiple papers uh, and multiple texts, has, was really a game changer and not as much about my own success, but I'm an educator. So these days, much of the advice I give is not to myself, but to my students and to my postdocs and other young individuals. And I always involve, invoke these laws. It gave me the backbone on which I can really give pertinent advice to each of my trainees how to succeed what to do next in their career.
0: Well, Lazlo, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Absolutely. So, so
1: I mean, I would obviously start with the formula, but uh, there's also a website, parabashi.com, which is my personal website or my lab's website is connected to that. And we also have the formulabook.com that has lots of content related to the book. And thanks for having me on the show.
0: Lazlo, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Bye-bye then. My guest today was Albert Laszlo Barbashi. He's the author of the book, The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website. It's spelled B-A-R-A-B-A-S-I.com. Learn more about his work. Also check out our show notes at AOM.is slash formula, where you can find links to resources where we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles written over the years on success, personal development, personal finances, physical fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free editions of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so only on Stitcher Premium. Sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use code manliness to get a free month of Stitcher Premium. Once you sign up, you can download the Stitcher iOS or Android app and start in Join the Art of Manliness podcast ad free, and if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AM podcast but put what you've heard into action.